What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you another week of what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty uh, press pass co-host Dave Martin Swagger up in that Boston Film Fest last night. Dave, how's it going, man? We smoking that Dune Spice Pack tonight, baby. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, so you went to a... a screening of a film we're going to, that you're going to talk about today Correct. called Parallel Mothers at Boston Film Fest. But what was just the overall like vibe there? Yeah, so this is my sec- second time going in person to this. Last year was virtual. And it's just cool. It just I, I also wasn't actually pressed. That, that'd be cool if it was. But uh, it's, it's a cool vibe for sure. Just a lot of like local people. I feel like it's like students and old people, really. It's probably the mix of people that go to things like this. And it's a great opportunity to see movies that you probably won't get to see for uh, several more months, a lot in some cases. So uh, it's always cool to see that. But it's definitely a lot of people that are like, you know, big, you know, film heads. You know, you don't always encounter that at a normal, normal screening. So, you know, in my case, having people like laugh out loud at, you know, a Spanish movie reading subtitles, you know, it's uh, not, not something you experience all the time. Yeah. You know, it's... uh it's funny because you also texted me earlier in the week when you went to go see the French Dispatch, which was like a special early screening as well, right? Yeah, anyone could sign up for that though. That's yeah, that's I, just yeah. I was just gonna say, I feel like you've had some uh, some interesting and uh, some really positive film and theater experiences recently. Like not that's only right. this, but you saw, um, gosh, what was the movie the week before? Blanking. Last Duel. Yes, last duel with like a nice crowd, whereas I was the only person in the theater for my right. So. On the other side of this, I saw Dune in AMC Dolby Cinema, as it was meant to be seen, and my uh, theater didn't have the file loaded properly in the projector, so it started an hour after the fact. So you take oh, the good with the no. bad for the theater experience. I guess I guess you just had to be knocked down a peg after. Too many positive experiences, right? So we yeah, you know, and to, to their credit, they didn't play a second of previews once they finally got it right. So that did save uh, save some time that was lost. So all good. Well, Dave, uh, we got a lot to get into today. Well, actually, maybe not a lot, but some good stuff to dig into mm-hmm. today. Some major uh, things, no question. Yeah, so we should probably hop right into it. If you're not already subscribed at youtube.com slash nostalgiapod or soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod, just go do that. Also follow us on Twitter at nostalgiapod. Dave, let's start with a uh, an album that was a bit of a surprise in terms of release, but a really welcome surprise. Uh, JPEG Mafia dropping uh, his newest album, LP. Um, and... We did talk about All My Heroes Are Cornballs, I believe, right? We did. Yes, 2019, his uh, third album. This makes his fourth. I went back and I, I mean, he he dropped EP last year, so it makes sense that there's like a LP follow-up to it. Um, All My Heroes Are Cornballs, going back and listening to it. uh, JPEG is one of a kind, man. (laughs) I guess that's the best way to put it. No one really makes music like him. Um, And I really thought or i i guess like in listening to lp and also going back to all my heroes are cornballs i really felt like there was like a level up uh in this and i found lp to be probably a record i enjoy more than all my heroes are corn cornballs now i feel like that might flip-flop but just something about i think the way the song sounded and mixed and also i think some of his like 
some of his choices in terms of like we'll we'll talk about it but like mixing things in and just like the overall vibe of the album just felt i don't know more accessible maybe more like Hmm. listenable to me a re-listenable but i really liked lp what did you think yeah so i'm also not sure if it's lp or lp exclamation point exactly how he's what he what he's calling lp lp yes (laughs) uh yeah, definitely a surprise. Wasn't expecting this, I think. Other than maybe Bald, all these songs are new. Uh, maybe a few others had come out. Bald and the Bald remix, anyway. Um, yeah, it's funny to hear you uh, say that because I think to, to most people, like that album previous to All My Heroes of Cornwall's Veteran for 2018, that was like the huge level up in terms yeah. of like, getting a lot of like online notice and like, uh, you know, like, engendering a lot of fans and all that. And I think LP it's kind of in the spirit of everything else he's been doing, you know, uh, in the sense, as you said, he is uh, unique. He is hard to pin down. He just does a lot of different shit all the time, whether it's uh, really in your face lyrics and reference points bordering on trolling, whether it's using extensive auto tune and not rapping at all on a song, it's really hard to predict what's going to happen. And I mm-hmm. guess in the sense that from a predictability standpoint, it's kind of been the same for me. You know, um, I don't know if this uh, jumped out at me any more than uh, Cornballs, but I mean, I think there's still a lot of songs I like. If anything, I, I think one of my favorite things to notice was a, a brief through line here. All My Heroes Are Cornballs has a, a song called Bad Bitch Tear Gas, which is a very short uh, sung cover of part of TLC's No Scrubs. On LP, we now have a uh interpolation of britney spears oops i did it again on the song thoughts prayer so maybe peggy is interested in 90s pop 90s r&b i would love to see this uh theme continue yeah no i i thought that moment was just absolutely awesome you know (laughs) and having that be like the chorus that runs back through just every time like lifting me like back up into the song just like an (laughs) awesome choice and he he works it in so perfectly um but yeah you know i i think uh, maybe i need to go back listen to cornballs more uh closely um but lp just brought this like lighter energy i feel like and i also felt like some of the songs like um are you happy or dirty um they just sound a little bit more like I don't know. Maybe maybe they're a little bit more traditional, you know, or maybe I'm just more right. useless to JPEG at this point, and this just yeah. feels more normal. But um, it just felt like I, I was able to get more into it. I also just I felt like anytime the album started to lull, these songs are pretty short, and the next song came on, usually grabbed me. So I just felt I don't know. There wasn't any real dips for me. So maybe that was it. But yeah, really like this record. Yeah, you know, maybe if anything, there's like less of an edge to a lot of these songs Hmm. not that like lyrically he's not still you know quote-unquote edgy or anything like that avant-garde he still is but i guess like musically instrumentally it's maybe not as like lo-fi and like disruptive to your ears you know yeah and maybe maybe, as you said that's just kind of learning to listen to abnormal uh non-traditional music like this right but maybe on the other hand he might be smoothing it out i do think there's uh, like less like hard bars rapping on this than on past work i think that was kind of obvious you know he yeah, uh, true. uses a lot of more like uh sung interludes and stuff like that 
And even on, you know, lively songs, songs I like, like Rebound, just rapping, it's still not as hard as like something else from his past. So I guess sure. there is a bit of a transition. Yeah, I guess there's no like, I can't wait till Morrissey fucking dies on here or something. Like yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, you know, I also feel like he like switches his up, switches it up a lot on here in terms of like uh, sound and what he's going for. And I think in listening through, it feels like one of his only like contemporaries in terms of like crafting songs is probably someone like Earl Sweatshirt, um, you know, just because of like the uniqueness and the just like choppiness of the songs and the unpredictability of where they're going. Um, but I feel like what he does differently from Earl, I mean, obviously not as strong of a lyricist, I would say, although he still can definitely spit a bar, um, is I think he just made songs that were like fun to listen to or more enjoyable to listen to. Like something like Cutie Pie really stands out to me as just like riding this like like slight uh, drum loop and just like really smooth and this like bass line in the background. But then like you mentioned, um, uh what was the song with Britney Spears is it thoughts prayer like just yeah. super fun um are you happy follows that one up and that's great and then damn 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 might be my favorite song on this whole thing man studying my footwork I'm James Harden come on song, <laughs> yes. this, this, this record is great like just it's, it's yeah. good stuff again he's I, I would say Earl isn't as weird as Peggy yeah. from a vocal perspective you know so good it's really point. hard to find a true contemporary and that's what makes him so fun and cool yeah absolutely any songs that we didn't shout out that you wanted to uh i liked uh og og exclamation point in terms of you know a short non-traditional song a lot of instrumentals going on i think that's a good example of like his outside the box song making yeah i i, I think we shout out a lot of them but i just wanted to Shout out Dirty again. Really enjoyed Dirty. Um, Dave, from one New York City artist to another. RK Quartz. They're back. Eighth album. We've only been really tuned into them since their last one, Wide Awake, in 2018, which uh, I think brought them their most uh, success and critical acclaim to this point. Although, you know, they, they, I think they're a group that still kind of resides in that like B tier of like, like rock and specifically like, I guess they're in like the punk dance rock scene now. Yeah. Um, it's kind of hard to like really label them, but a lot of the, a lot of the narrative around this album, uh, Sympathy for Life, is about how they're finally embracing dance into mm. their, their sound and, you know, like uh, using a, a dub. Uh, machine to try to build out their sound a little bit more they really they were up in the Catskills in New York shout out uh, New York greenery and uh, wilderness but uh, doing these like long jam sessions that got cut down by their producer um, to make like these songs I gotta be honest I don't I don't find anything on here like super different from wide awake and i don't know if i totally agree with like all the the narrative around like how different things are but i still think there's some songs on here that absolutely slap i just don't feel like it's as uh i don't think it reaches the highs of wide awake consistently Hmm. but how did you feel about sympathy for life 
Yeah, I liked it. I I guess I share a similar sentiment in, in the sense that wasn't like super blown away by anything, but I also didn't really dislike anything either. It's pretty good and cool to read, as you said, that they did a lot of this pre-COVID. And as you said, they kind of like chop a lot of this down later and even like change what they want to convey with the songs during quarantine in terms of like a message and stuff. And it's cool to see like the inspiration from like, you know, uh, club shows and that energy and that scene seems to take a lot of, bring a lot of inspiration into the music. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I don't think when people think of like club music, they don't necessarily think of this, but like, I think the energy of going to clubs and like that community is what they're trying to convey a lot. And yeah, so I, I'd say it's still pretty good. It's, it's better than most rock that I hear these days. I think they're sure. really solid and like, you know, they're, they're just jamming out. It's fun. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think this is still a really uh, good album, especially when you're grading on the, the curve of rock albums nowadays. But, um, you know, I, I shouted out their producer. I want to make sure I mention uh, his name is Rodide McDonald. And he's worked with like a bunch of really famous people from King Cruel and the XX to Adele and Sampha um, and probably more um, more recently people uh, groups like Savages uh, are like at the top of his list there also john paris was a producer on this as well but uh rodade was really um shouted out by the band as like helping to find the sound amid these long jam sessions that they were doing um yeah you know i I found the first half of this album to be a little less interesting Uh, you know besides i think the first two tracks walking at a downtown pace which the drum in that is just like unbelievable (laughs) like really stands out and then black widow spider uh also brings a lot of energy then it's kind of a i found it to be a little more like downbeat than i expected until homo sapien and then i feel like it really cranks up up until the final track so um it it goes in like ups and downs for me on the album and again i think that's why wide awake would still be my preferred uh parquet courts album of choice if i had to make one but um what what song stood out to you or what what moments did you like yeah there were two moments that stood out to me i liked plant life for like the layered vocals that pop up kind of reminded me like black midi or even Mm. like gorillas from time to time that combined with like the snare sound really cool and then also towards the end uh trullo the instrumentation there just really like funky percussion as well as uh you know like fun vocal loops going on but i really liked all of it yeah um you mentioned uh, Plant Life. Plant Life and Trullo are probably the two songs that sound most like an LCD sound system track to me. Uh, like Trullo almost sounds exactly like Your City's a Sucker to me. Um, but I think you can just hear that like uh, that influence from bands like Air um, and LCD and, and uh, groups like that that they're probably really listening to. Also, apparently, um, uh, so the, the two leads in the group are... Um, Brown, uh, I should get his full name, uh, Austin Brown, Andrew Savage. And I, I can't remember which one, but one of them attributed uh, his inspiration for this album as taking acid and going to the gym. So uh, whatever works, right? Uh, good good for them. So we'll, we'll be adding some of the tracks to our Nostalgia Best of 2021 playlist. So check that out on Spotify. Um, keeping it moving, though, in music, Dave, we got a second album 
which I know you were dying for from Lana Del Rey. Second of 2021. M Trails Over the Country Club dropping in March. March. I was going to say February. March. Been a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's been a minute, but also two in a year is unlike Lana. I mean, we had been waiting, yeah. what, like two years, I think, before the one uh, yeah. Norman, Norman fucking Rockwell. So, yeah, year and a half. Yeah. So she's, she's working uh, a bit divisive at times. Lana is certainly her own person. <laughs> Loaded sentence there. <laughs> <laughs> um, we don't necessarily need to get too far into that. But I guess just like to give our basic like chemtrails over the country club review, uh, not what we were hoping for and uh, a little too sleepy from Lana, I'd say, right? Yeah. With her Americana take. Right. Well, it, especially because Norman fucking Rockwell was great. Yeah. And as a non Lana Del Rey fan leading into Norman fucking Rockwell, it kind of changed changed my expectations of what I want or might enjoy from her music. Obviously, very successful and popular before that, but to me, it represented a clear level up and made me way more interested in her. And Chemtrails, despite the presence of Jack Antonoff once again, did not manage to hit those levels, and you know, probably is more appealing to her longtime fans because it's a little more. Uh, familiar to her earlier work and blue banisters doesn't have jack antonoff in the fold at all thank god yeah <laughs> I, I guess if anything he's probably the first of these notable pop stars to make something without him after making so- a lot of stuff with him right we, we haven't actually seen too many of these high tier a-listers move on from jack just yet so maybe is Lana the first i think she might be and yeah probably yeah, I think that my, my problem is I still can't separate it from Norman fucking Rockwell as like someone who's not a huge Lana fan. So, you know, I guess it depends what you're looking for, you know? And did Blue Bannisters deliver what you're looking for, Dave? I think that's the question. Uh, well, no, it didn't. It didn't. <laughs> what about you? Well, you know, I was like, I was prepared to get on here and just like totally hate this album. And I just, I don't totally hate it. Like, I, I think there's some good stuff. I didn't here. totally I, hate chemtrails either. I don't, I don't hate any yeah. of it. I just, you know, don't get up I, for it either. I, I think chemtrails just felt unmemorable to me and just like, uh, listless. And mm. this, at least I, I can like feel Lana's like, uh, energy behind this. I, I think if anything, what stands out most to me about this record is it's probably, um, her, like she has some of her best vocal performances on here since like the greatest on Norman fucking Rockwell, which I thought her vocal performance on that on the greatest is probably the most standout from that whole album. And there are moments on here where she is just singing her, her ass off, dude, which I really appreciate because Lana, she kind of comes with that like cool girl vibe where it's almost like she's not trying, you know, it's like her weirdness and her yeah. aesthetic that kind of carries her at times. But man, when she really wants to, she can like belt it out and really hit some some great. She has great range. So I I found this to be, if anything, like impressive in terms of what Lana can do. Um, I think there's still a lot of stuff on here. I'm probably just not gonna remember after listening to it, which is maybe not great. But there's definitely some songs that stood out. So overall, better than Chemtrails, but it doesn't reach Norman fucking Rockwell, which is hard yeah. to compare to. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, speaking to that vocal performance, I was really impressed with Black Bathing Suit, um, mm-hmm. the way she sings on some of those like pre-choruses and stuff. Like, you could, like there's just a a presence to her voice that when she really wants to like 
make that impact she can and you know it's pretty effortless and you kind of forget that because she's definitely someone who's more hailed at first for like her songwriting than for her vocals but they're still right there and i think black bathing suit's nice because it's also probably the most pointed example of her reckoning with her latest you know uh public uh you know uh, outgoings and, and issues online and stuff as we come to expect from her career she's since uh uh, left social media at, at mm-hmm. the time of recording anyway so i think that it's cool to like hear her address the things that go on apart from her music in her music you know whether it's uh, enough for the people that are really going for her neck uh, you'd have to ask them i guess i'm not one of those people um and you know it's funny like if you think about the songwriting on this i wonder how much of it has to do with a lot of these songs are old like mm-hmm. uh a bunch of these songs are from 2013, Ultraviolence Sessions time. Um, Thunder is from 2017, from the old sessions with Last Shadow Puppets for an album they didn't end up making. So it's it, it's funny to see something like this cobbled together that still definitely feels like the next line album. Like I, I don't listen to and think, oh, this is definitely her like her third album or anything like that. But yet there's actually some songs here that uh, are from a completely different time. You know, and she still managed to make them work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I definitely think that probably helps a little bit. I mean, um, having something that kind of harkens back to when she was coming up in fame, instead of maybe like where her creative uh, eye has been recently, uh, definitely delivers a different sound than Chemtrails for sure. Um, I, I black bathing suits stood out to me as well. Um, also. Uh, I liked uh, two songs before that, Arcadia. The, there's like a moment in the back half. I, I forgot if it's like leading into the last verse or at the end of the second to last verse, but she just like hits this really high note and then goes back down to this like really quiet sound. And just like her ability to do that is something I I feel like almost gets lost in, in her aesthetic and everything around her is like she can hit those notes when she wants to. She does it again later on in uh, Living Legend as well. She's just singing her ass off which i really appreciate um and yeah a lot of these just are kind of like ballads too right they're just like her with like one or two instruments just really carrying it which she you know she doesn't do it like someone like adele no one can really do it to that level but like she doesn't really have those chops but she still i think pulled this off for the most part so pretty impressed yeah uh, interlude the trio really made my ears perk because of those like out of nowhere drums that are sampled from a Ennio Morricone score. I was like, what the f- who the fuck Dude. thought of that? That was just so random. I know. I was like ready for the album to like take off in a totally different direction. And then it just went right back to the same shit. I was like, what yeah. was this? Yeah. One last note too. The first track yeah. textbook, the early beginning of that chorus, the first half of that chorus is the same rhythm as Lord's team. Like that, the vibe is like the same vibe too. Yeah. And it's really funny to notice that because uh, Lana's team was going after Lord recently from due to similarities between Stone of the Nail Salon from Lord and Lana Del Rey's Wild at Heart on uh, Chemtrails. Okay. And, you know, there's all, all this stuff going on right now with uh, songwriting and music publishing going out. You know, Taylor Swift really came at Olivia Rodrigo hard for stuff like this recently. You know, it's kind of uh, everyone's kind of running scared in terms of not trying not to get sued post uh, the Blurred Lines verdict. So I wonder if Lord will soon also get a piece of that song the way Lana got a piece of some of the Lord's songs recently. You know, it's a 
always funny to see this stuff pop up but that was when i actually like truly noticed you know it's like the first time i heard it i was like oh wait no i know what this song sounds like to me it's not like i had to like dig and try and like cut a corner you know to yeah or anything like sometimes but yeah the drama man uh the the infighting continues uh let, let us know what you think about this Lana Del Rey album, because I, I'm interested to see. Uh, I Obviously, she's got her stands, but if those like more middle of the road fans are really like enjoying this or if they're like, where what direction is she going in at this point? Um, I mean, it's her eighth album, so you have to have favorites and not favorites if you are a fan of hers. Absolutely. Um, moving on to TV. Dave, Insecure is back. Actually, HBO, just like fully back from COVID at this point we have succession we have insecure we have curb your enthusiasm i watched the curb your enthusiasm premiere just want to say real quick larry david still hilarious still ridiculous the show is always great so if you enjoy that stuff watch it um another show that's always great though is insecure Issa ray um entering its final season fifth and final um left off at the end of last season with Issa and molly not in a good place Issa and Lawrence in a unsure place when Lawrence finds out that his uh, ex-girlfriend is pregnant with his child. Condola oh. virus. It's going to get you. <laughs> so just, uh, I guess, before we hop into this, the premiere episode, where were you at with Insecure knowing that this was the last season, you know, and just overall we're going to get one more season and that's it? Yeah, I guess for me, probably two seasons ago my expectations for the show changed so now i just happy to be with these characters i've been with a long time the ensemble has great chemistry these actors know their roles well at this point yeah and you have dedicated writing team a lot of veterans behind the camera melina matsukas who did the pilot of the show came back which come back many times she came back again directed this first episode of season five there's a lot of care put into insecure so i'm just happy to you know see this show about black women about la it does all these things well like it's been doing for a while in terms of like creatively like once we realized that jay ellis's lawrence was going to be a fixture on the show for the remainder of the show i feel like narratively i was like not as invested and where it was going because it just feels like there's a, such a pull with Issa that I just wish wasn't happening creatively. But uh, yeah, I, I just want to see where, what happens with Molly and Issa. You know, I, ho- I hope it's a, a nice end note here. You know, I hope it's a secure ending. Yeah, and I, I think that that's probably the thing that stood out most to me about the show. And not like this is like a novel um, observation, but just how the show in the, like the early seasons, I think, felt a lot like um centered around friendship centered around exploring black experience um black female experience specifically but also you know venturing into black male experience at times as well um but really the show has more and more become about the relationship between uh isa and molly um rather than like their external relationships which i feel was more of a fixture in the early um seasons and uh i appreciate that you know because i i think um one of the things that is not portrayed on television nearly enough is just black friendships. And that's what makes this show great is exploring that, exploring the black experience. And that continues, I think in in season five, at least in the premiere, what we see. And obviously, like I said, Issa and Molly, not in a good place at the beginning. They're 
brought back together, of course, with a um, 10 year reunion for their college, uh, which is all too real because I believe mine is two years away, which is really weird to say. Um, but you know, this episode was stood out to me most, I think, was how much like Atlanta it felt at times. Um, you know, specifically the stuff with their their friend uh who oh, robs them yeah. and right. like her whole vibe and, and also like the, the whole robbing scene when he's like he, he he's like, Well you, you said she was just gonna do whatever, Chai, like you gotta shut up, Chai, and they're like, Chai, like you know her and then the way that she responded, like anyone can get it, like that was very like some an episode of Atlanta to me, but um, yeah, I, I really liked this this premiere. Um, I thought it balanced some like fun moments, like the stuff with Kelly. I thought was really really funny, but also some sweet moments and also some really sad moments. It just kind of shows like how how high this show is operating at, just how excellent it is at this point. So, was really impressed. What did you think of the premiere? Yeah, I liked it. I think the uh, the robbing scene kind of uh, came came uh, as a surprise to me as well, yeah. and felt like a organic and still unexpected way to begin to mend the bridge between Molly and Issa. Yeah. I like that. Uh, interested to see what happens with Kelly. Tasha Rothwell wasn't really in much of season four. Obviously, she's a significant creative force behind the scenes for the show now. But interested to see where they take her, where they take everyone else besides Issa and Molly, who have now been on the show a long time and have you know been built up to a certain extent as well. So that would be cool. From what I understand, there is a one-year time jump starting in episode two. That's definitely new for the show to really advance everyone and then pick it back up. Also, we know that Kiki Palmer will be joining the show as Lawrence's sister. Um, it seems like a lot of the Lawrence stuff will be happening again, independent of everyone, you know, as he's having this kid with Condola. So um, interested to see you know, where it goes. You know, it's not like I'm trying to predict anything, just looking forward to seeing, seeing what happens, being on the ride, you know, and it's still going to look good. It's going to have good music. We had Kamaya and Too Short, among others, come up in the first episode here. So yeah, Insecure. So it's ending, but it's also part of a banner Sunday night for a while now through the end of the year with Succession. Yeah, and you know, you just see episodes like this where you have these funny moments stitched in with the, like the sweet moments with uh, you know, um Kelly and you know, her them like really talk about how wonderful a friend she is to them, how important she is to them, and then cutting right then to next to the uh the scene with Lawrence and Issa and just how like sad and like heartbreaking that was. And you can really I think see why Issa Rae as a creator is just so sought after right now, you know. Um uh, she really is just able to tell stories on so many different levels and intertwine all these moments so seamlessly. It's just really impressive. And like you said, she curates everything, you know, from, from the music to, you know, what the, the story and to what they're wearing. And she's just really a, a, a high level creator at this point. So really good stuff. Um, any last thoughts before we move on to the movies of this week, Dave? Insecure is good, but uh, you know it's probably a nice place to end to five seasons. That's a it's a great run for a show these these days, for sure. Um, Dave, we're gonna switch up now and talk about Parallel Mothers. So I'm gonna let you vamp here because you saw it, I did not. 
Yeah, so Parallel Mothers is the movie I just saw at the Independent Film Festival of Boston. This is a Spanish film from Pedro Amodovar. Most recently spoke about Amodovar's last feature film, uh, Pain and Glory, starring Antonio Banderas back in 2019. Of course, that movie went on to be nominated for Best International Feature Film. Banderas got a Best Actor nomination. Amodovar, titan of international cinema, uh, you know, icon of Spain arts, as people know. And this new movie, Parallel Mothers, she shot in Madrid this year, premiered at Venice. Penelope Cruz won the Best Actress Award at Venice. It's a lot of hype going into this movie. It actually has 100% Rotten Tomatoes right now on 37 reviews. Um, it actually will not be coming out in the U.S. until Christmas Eve. It's also a Sony Pictures Classics release, so you know that it's going to take a long time for this to be released. So I don't think a lot of people are going to get a chance to see this until 2022. Um, it has been released in Spain already. So not going to do any spoilers uh, because of that. But, you know, it's a movie I liked. I didn't love it. I probably liked Pain and Glory a little bit more. Um, and I'm not, I'm not super well-versed in all of Amodivar's other films, so I'm still kind of new to like his flourishes and his style. But I think it, it's really interesting because it has a really simple logline, really simple pitch that everyone's reiterating. There's these uh, two single mothers, played by Penelope Cruz and a much younger uh, actress, Milena uh, Smith, and they meet at a hospital. They're both having unexpected babies as single moms, and they just kind of strike up a kindred spirit over their experiences uh, with motherhood and how they feel about it and how their feelings differ and all that. And there's some twists and turns that pop up with that. But it's really interesting because this movie also is being used as a way for Amodovar to really like speak about uh, some personal politics that are important to him going on in Spain. Uh, because Penelope Cruz's character, Janice, is very invested in the exhumation of mass graves in Spain from the Civil War in the 70s from uh, uh, the dictator Franco and everything that happened with that. And Amodivar decided to be really uh, forthright with how he approached this topic, which apparently is was very controversial and polarizing in Spain. After that Civil War, Spain did not really want to discuss what happened. They also wanted to move forward together, unified form of democracy, right? And now, it's a really big political issue between left and right, as you can imagine, in terms of people trying to truly end the war and take things back by finding their lost loved ones. On the other side, you have people accusing them of trying to, uh, you know, dig up old wounds. And those two sides are kind of presented in the film. So it's really interesting to see how this movie, it's a movie about motherhood, very much about that, but also has these like kind of rich political themes, uh, cultural themes, especially to Spanish people present in the movie and it's not just kind of like a hacky thing to get the characters to interact it actually is a through line uh throughout the whole film so i guess the question probably is which of those things you connect with more the political side or the uh, personal in, in you know, individual stories about these new mothers uh i guess that's up to the viewer but i liked it i thought it was pretty good it was, it was funny to see uh uh, the, the humor land uh, in the crowd I, I was seeing it in. Uh, there's a lot of uh, 
funny funny lines played for last in terms of the appearances of certain uh, physical appearances of certain characters i'll mm. leave it at that so yeah i'd say parallel mothers uh it's, or it's a uh, madres perelas in spanish it's uh gonna be a while before most people can see it but um you know penelope cruz best actress it sounds like there's gonna be a run see if that happens and she is quite tremendous in this film and, you know, she's a muse of a mode of art, been in many of his movies, of course, but I think she was really great. So I'd recommend it. Interesting. But you said you, you wouldn't put it above his other film, right? Yeah, I like Pain and Glory just uh, a little bit more. I think that may have just because I, I, that personal story I invested it a little bit more. I thought, you know, Banderas was also tremendous in that. Um, you know, that was kind of like a work of autofiction on Motivar's putting a bit of his own life as a creator onto mm-hmm. that character. Really connect with that one a lot. This one, um, I think part of it, honestly, is I saw this at uh, 8 p.m. on a Sunday night, and I was kind of tired. Uh, and, yeah. you know, it's tough to watch a subtitle movie when, sure. when you're not super awake. So I think that probably had something to do with it. I still appreciate mm-hmm. the movie, though. So, yeah, yeah, I'd still recommend it. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to see that. Um we're going to move on from that to some bigger films, but definitely something we'll circle back to if I ever do get to it. We both got to the French Dispatch this weekend, though, Dave. Um, not out in a ton of theaters. I think you said only like 50 or so? Yeah, uh, under 60 theaters, uh, limited release so far for the French Dispatch, uh, you know, from Searchlight. But it did have the highest uh, per theater average, uh, you know, of the pandemic era in terms of art house film. That's kind of been a big... Uh, you know, concern in terms of independent movies made for adults not really making any money at all as older audiences are reluctant to return to the box office. And yes, this per theater average was still below that of Isle of Dogs and Grand Budapest, but it was still really impressive compared to, for, you know, for the times we're in. So it's nice to see the early uh, buzz for French Dispatch in terms of, you know, people in major cities going to see it. Wes Anderson puts asses in the seats dude with the theater i was at was absolutely packed i went on a friday night to watch it um and i, I just want to say jacob jacob burns uh theater film center in, yeah. yeah in film center in pleasantville great they make you show proof of uh, vaccination and everything like that just just overall good good stuff so appreciated them um this is like the most wes anderson film to date for sure oh, yeah. like we we, we uh did a, a rankings wes anderson film rankings check that out um on our youtube page youtube.com slash nostalgia pod um and we, you know we went deep into all the movies but this being an anthology film it's like he just got to make five different wes anderson movies and just stitch them all together and yeah it if you don't like Wes Anderson, you're not going to like this movie very much. And I've seen some people with a little bit of like, all right, this guy's a little too much. So some of those takes are out there. But I thought overall, this was a really enjoyable thing, or a really enjoyable film. Um, and I think what I really liked about it was the fact that we got three different stories that all engaged me in different ways. And then some some short, short uh, snippets around it. Also, just like it's insane how many people want to work with him. Like Elizabeth Moss is in this and just like has like three lines. And yeah. Uh, the rest of the movie. It's crazy. Sarah Sharonin, uh, who, who worked with him before is barely in this movie. The yeah. total bit part. Yeah. I mean, he insane. has an amazing relationship with talent in terms of getting people to work with him. And that's kind of been the case really since like Rushmore and Tenenbaums, like he's had this yeah. reputation. 
he works with the same people all the time, but he keeps adding to that acting ensemble, you know? Yep. And we know he has a, a, a movie he uh, is about to finish filming, Asteroid City, uh, coming up next. And that's another one where you look who's in that cast and say, like, oh, those people that he only just worked with for the first time recently, they're already coming back. Like he just has his regulars, now he's making new ones too. So uh, Wes Anderson, I believe this is what is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, tenth film. So yeah, this is the tenth Wes Anderson film, and it's still very Wes Anderson. If you don't like Wes Anderson, it's uh, reasonable to uh, expect that that would not change with this because this is him doing all the things he normally does. So, and that's, oh, why would you want anything else at this point? You know, he's one of the few people that actually has the rope still to do something like this. So you just gotta be happy it's still being made. Yeah, and when we talk about like this being <laughs> uber Wes Anderson, like a, a tour uh, to this point, I mean, you get the the dollhouse, dollhouse stylings, you get the mm. like diorama, you get the, uh, animated parts like there's a little bit of everything sewn into this but it, i think it all really works and adds to the stories the one thing i will say uh his his storytelling is so fast-paced at times and like yeah. some of the stories are su- such like uh told in such a way where it's like a russian nesting doll where it's like a story within a story within a story that like it can be hard to follow at times i think especially something like the um the prison one uh right. private dining room of the police commissioner can feel a little bit confusing at times yeah there's, you like, have... three, there's like three levels to that right jeffrey Wright's yeah. talking to leave schreiber on like a talk show about the story that he will then be giving to uh bill murray to put in the magazine on top of right. all that so there's a few levels to that one no question yeah uh but i i think that's just like a small critique otherwise i thought most of the stuff really worked did you enjoy the film as a whole? I did. Yeah. And I think to what you're saying, though, is kind of a key question is because there it's an anthology setting. It's all tied, you know, to this greater story. To some people, it might be more up and down. I like that story. I don't like that one quite as much. And maybe if one of these stories was blown out to be a full length feature, perhaps that in some world is actually a better film. We don't know how that would be. And because it's Wes and like, because everything's so finely colored in, in terms of character development and everything, you'd have to believe that, yeah, maybe he could have done even more. So on the other hand, though, his 10th film is almost like four mini films all together somehow. So I guess I still kind of liked what we got. So, yeah, I think because it's fast paced, because it keeps moving, to the next story and you don't know what's happening next uh, i was still really invested even if i obviously had a favorite you know moment versus something else because again it keeps changing yeah uh i do think it was uh probably more up and down than some of the films but i actually didn't mind it so much i actually think it worked in some sense and you know so th- this has been put on hold for a while i think it was supposed to come out sometime last summer right uh, uh yeah last year covid delays yeah, yeah. maybe may and uh covid delays for sure um and I, I think this was kind of just supposed to be like a little like love letter to the, the new yorker which you know obviously yeah. i think the french dispatch uh in and of itself is just a fictional version of the new yorker right. it's supposed to be um and an asteroid city seems like the film that he was really just like focused on it's his biggest one to date that's supposed to be like 
amazing. <laughs> but what we got, I thought was just really wonderful and charming and uh, just really like I, I left just thinking about it a lot. Um, and I gotta say, there are parts that don't work for me. The Owen Wilson beginning, I thought was like, whatever, kind of fine. See, I thought that was get... so funny, though. And oh, even you if did? It, yeah, I, I thought it was pretty fun. But it's also only like two minutes. It's like barely there, you know? So I was happy to see right. it, you know, watching uh, him but... on the bike and all that. Yeah, riding around riding around on Wii. Um, yeah, I thought it was a good introduction. And there were definitely some funny parts. Um, I got to say, my theater was like really laughing at that part. So I, maybe it just didn't tickle me the same way. But then I really love the first one, the Concrete Masterpiece. Yes. Definitely my favorite of the three. Um you know, I think it had the funniest moment in it for me when uh, Tilda Swinton is going through the slides and shows the picture of her naked instead of the one oh, of that's the guards. Oh, that's me. This is the wrong slide. And just like lingered on it for a second. Just really, really hilarious. Um, but yeah, I, I loved the um, relationship between Del Toro's uh, Moses uh, Rosen, Rosenthaler, Rosenthaler, and then mm-hmm. uh, Leah, Leah Sedu's um, Simone, who... I gotta say, after seeing her in um, No Time to Die and then here, night and day to me. Like, she's just so much better in this film, in my opinion. Maybe, maybe, it's, the, maybe it's the role. Maybe it's the writing. I think I it's know. definitely the role. <laughs> yeah, but um, definitely. Uh, and then I loved Adrian Brody in that one, too. What did you think of that one? Yeah, so I, I like that one. I think that one's really good. Um, it's funny to reckon with Wes's relationship with, like, the real world. For the most part, he always just makes fictional locations, fictional, more aspirational versions of places, right? Like the New York City and Road Tenant Bombs. Not very recognizable. It's kind of an amalgam and idealistic, you know, mm-hmm. pine sky type of New York. In this case, right, we're in this fictional French city, but he actually manages to like take a lot of inspiration from real life. So many of these characters are based on real people. Many of them, obviously, figures at the New Yorker, like Harold Ross and James Baldwin and Joseph Mitchell, et cetera. But even like Adrian Brody's character in that, that, that piece is based off a famous art dealer who was profiled in the New Yorker decades ago, you know? So it, it's kind of cool to see him do this because he hasn't really done this too much. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I like that one a lot. I thought Brody was great as like a, the slimeball character. Um, and I mean, the visuals were really, really tremendous, as you expect. Um, in the prison though but I, I i loved everything about the art in terms of like building up building up this artist and you know the completely phony fashion so that was great and then you also have like you know the love story and the the you know everything with del toro's ability to you know create and all that i thought it was really good but then i think brody has like the best line too it's like like uh artists are meant to sell their work or however he puts it you know which i think mm. is a nice nod from Wes so yeah I think that was really cool yeah I thought that one was great um also just there's something about the Wes Anderson scenes when like someone's trying to leave and they're like oh there's a bunch of people outside and then they like cut to all the people outside and they're all just like waiting behind the door with like a knife or something yes I just always find that like just super funny and he really pulls it off well in that one um but yeah I, I thought that one was great um what, what what stories stood out to you I mean there's only three of them um yeah but which one was your favorite? So I actually liked the uh, Chalamet uh, student revolutionaries one the most. I feel like the most popular one seems to be the final one with Jeffrey Wright. But 
I really like the one with the students. Again, kind of inspired by real life events in terms of the uh, student Paris protests in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And I thought Chalamet as Zeffirelli was really funny. I loved his uh, counterpart uh, figure, the uh, uh, you know his fellow fellow woman at the school, and how like they butt heads because they don't quite align in terms of their ability to take down society and all that. Love that. Um, I think everything with the kids was really cool. I think the, the way they set that up too, and like the motif of like chess coming back and stuff. Really liked all that. Um, that one also shifts between black and white and color, similar to the uh, the prison one or the uh, artist one. Actually, wait, was that yeah. one only in black and white? Come to think of it, how don't mm. you remember? It was definitely no, no it's definitely in color because okay, you see both. the color on the, the right. paintings and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I thought that was that one was pretty cool. Um, you know, double dose of Chalamet this weekend, of course, with Dune. Um, you know, McDormand. I guess, I, I guess, like thematically, that one's like not as like meaty on the bone but i was like just super invested in like watching these kids you know try and stick it to the man i was like really invested it's very familiar the Mm -hmm. thematic thing in terms of like uh very liberal college students and all that but i thought that was really fun yeah i thought that one was fun it also had by far i think the biggest standout performance or surprise performance from uh lena kudry as uh juliet in that one Mm -hmm. i just thought she was like magnetic on the screen and definitely uh seems like a, a west find so to speak um you know we talk about uh these characters or these uh great actors just getting a, a quick moment christoph waltz comes yeah. in for one scene just to get dunked on by francis mcdormand and then you know never is heard from again or i guess you see him one more time in the whole thing uh but yeah i, I really like, i really like that one a lot i think obviously Anytime you get Chalamet and McDormand together and do a little fanfic with them, can't hate on it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, th- I thought that one was really fun. Um, and then I, I really liked the last one too, the private dining room of the police mm-hmm. commissioner. Uh, just really giving Jeffrey Wright, uh, you know, that that James Baldwin-esque role. To yeah. It's the best vamp. performance in the movie for sure. A hundred percent. And I think it also has the most like moving um I don't know, like themes to it, so to speak. I mean, yeah, I, the the whole like final line where him and Bill Murray are talking about the line that he cuts out because it's too sad um, from the chef um, played right. by uh, Stephen Park. Um, I just thought that really hit home and uh, nailed it. And uh, yeah, I mean that that is probably the most loaded of the the three. I mean, <laughs> you got Jeffrey Wright, you got Liev Shriver. Um, Ed Norton, Willem Dafoe, Sersha, like you mentioned, just in like a bit yep. role. It's really, really good stuff. <laughs> I, I did not like expect this because I, I didn't remember they were all in the movie, but we kind of have a nice like reunion of major figures in the Daniel Craig Bondverse mm-hmm. between Jeffrey Wright, Lee Sedu, and then Matthew Almaric, the villain from yeah. Quantum of Solace. <laughs> Yeah. I know. When I, saw I don't him, think I anyone even like, interacted in the Craig movies, to be honest. I don't know if they share any scenes at all, but they're all obviously major characters. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now that that was funny. Um, yeah, you know, I I really just thought this was a really nice film, and I I liked the ending too. Obviously, um, Bill Murray's uh, playing Arthur Howitzer. He, I guess he's the through line to all of it. He shows up in each one, yeah. talking with the he's writers. The Harold Ross standing. Yeah, and um, when when he finally dies um at, at the end the way that they all come together i thought was just a really like nice and poignant way to like end the film so yeah how, how they like to start writing it 
one yeah. after the other really nice we'll, we'll, let, let's write it together which uh, obviously you know west theme of family that isn't actually family but that you create for yourself or find for yourself comes also, also what he does in real life always writing with his boys yeah. jason schwartzman and roman coppola as well um I, I, I guess the the question has to be where where does this fall in your west rankings yeah i'd say it's definitely in the middle like i don't think it's approaching the top tier yeah which again is fine this is 10th film not everything can be the best you know right but i still liked it you know um i don't really like darjeeling this is nowhere near that so yeah that, that's uh, really all i cared about honestly it's just just make another good one that's good enough for me yeah i mean it's it's not pen and bombs it's not budapest probably somewhere in that like b range right yeah i'd say yeah, so you're doing ranking, so and and i mean now too it's all focus is on asteroid city because the hype is real with that one all the usual suspects and trademarks apply but the fact that it's his biggest movie to date somehow wes anderson's getting his biggest budget yet despite the precarious state of adult dramas these days uh, you love to see it so i'm very excited about that and that, that might approach the scale of grand budapest we'd like to think I do just want to say, just looking at the uh, the cast here for uh, this uh, Asteroid City, uh, two notable, I guess, uh, yeah, two notable additions, Tom Hanks and Margot Robbie. So, hell yeah. Uh, hell yeah. Can't Scarlet's wait to... in it too, right? Yep, Scarlet's in it too. Although she did a, a voice, I think, for um, Isle of Dogs, five of them. Right, yeah, her first live action one. Also, Maya Hawke in this one. Mm, so Nice. Yeah, definitely oh, yeah. Uh, excited to see Asteroid City, but go see the French Dispatch. I, I think you'll at least find it to be a pleasurable and enjoyable watch. So pretty, pretty uh, brisk. What like two hours or however long it is? Mm-hmm. Hour. I mean, considering how many characters and different plots you encounter, it, it didn't feel long to me because it was moving at such a fast pace. Well, Dave, we're moving from uh, the French Dispatch, which tells these small stories, to maybe the uh, the biggest story ever tried to be told on on screen or at least one that's been difficult to tell um doom denny villanue uh getting his shot to helm the most popular sci-fi book of all time is that right most best-selling at least um uh, yeah definitely sci-fi you know separate lord of the rings and stuff that's fantasy yeah i think it's definitely the most yeah. popular sci-fi book yeah from 1965 it's a quite the mythology for dune now this is adapting part of the first book which as you said has uh, been done in rather poor fashion in the past and other times didn't even get off the ground so it's been a monumental task and we should say um uh, well at least i i have not seen the david lynch one everything i hear about it is that the the actual like the theater cut or original cut was a mess um but that if you watch the director's cut a lot of cinephiles really like that. Um, have you seen the original? Have you seen the David Lynch one? If not, no. But as you say, it does have a cult following. Um, yeah. There's also the three-part sci-fi channel miniseries from 2000, Lynch movie was 1984. And there's also the uh, Jodorowsky Dune, uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune that he never actually finished. Now there's a documentary about where, where all that went wrong. So there's some Dune stuff out there that you can experience of course myriad books as well so we finally got it dave you went to the theater i did not 
my, my, my one theater viewing was used on the French Dispatch. I watched this at home. I feel like I still got a pretty good experience from it. Um, I mean, just tell me about your theater experience. I mean, this feels like a movie that's meant to be seen like IMAX, right? Hell yeah. I mean, it was awesome. I think yeah. the movie's completely epic. It's gorgeous. Looks great. Sounds great. And to see that on the biggest screen possible, it's fucking rules, man. Yeah. yeah. So as you said, you can see it on HBO Max, like all Warner Brothers movies this year. Denny was not too pleased about that development. He was one of the more, the, one of the more vocal filmmakers about that displeasure. Um, at the end of the day, he still got the check from WB and moved on like the rest of us. So uh, yeah, obviously I would advise people to see it. It's had a okay box office to this point, which- Made money. Yeah, and I mean, it's not going to make its money back. It probably never was going to make its money back because it's hard sci-fi. And hard sci-fi does not have a track record at the box office. People don't go to see stuff like that. And Dune is not exactly a like active IP for younger audiences. So it is what it is, you know, and you'd have to imagine Warner Brothers knew that going in and we hope we get the sequel. But yeah, definitely yeah. worth seeing on the big screen. That's obvious. Yeah, 100%. Uh, just to, at, at least that the reports I'm seeing is that it's gross $223.2 million. Mm -hmm. uh, production budget was only 165 mil which uh, that cannot be right because it's like incredibly incredibly right uh, pre-marketing that number and yeah, yeah. It's, it's been out um internationally for uh you know a month plus at this point so right yeah it'll probably make like maybe 400 million total 350 400 which is not enough to get the money back as you know for the business side of things but um you know maybe you can write it off oh covid covid got us we would have made more money so all steam full steam ahead we, we, one can hope and i think it's also important that we kind of just state that this is uh dune part one we do not know how many parts are coming we assume there's probably two I, yeah I, I think there's gotta be two maybe there's three well and, and that's a great question because um as denny said from the jump he was adapting roughly half of the first dune novel frank herbert wrote six dune novels then he passed his son picked it up a lot of prequels later. There's there's quite the mythology with Dune these days. But you, I wonder if in, in some fantasy land where this was like a major franchise, would they actually want to try and make all six of those Dune novels or some of them, you know? Like, well, what would be that end game? Because this is very much half of one story, which technically is one-sixth of the entire story. So... Right. Uh, you know, I guess the real Dune heads, the real book heads would probably have a better opinion on that than me, which I actually yeah. started uh, Dune, the, the novel, and I like it so far. I haven't finished it. This movie actually made me want to uh, finish the book even more now to see what happens. I'm trying to avoid uh, spoilers uh, for what maybe would happen in part two. So, uh, I mean, some places are saying, well, you know, a sequel hasn't been greenlit. You don't get Zendaya and then have her show up really for like the last like 10 minutes of the movie if she's if there's not going to be a second movie. So right. uh, the second movie is coming and I have to almost guarantee it will probably be from Denis. Uh, and rightfully so, because this first one I thought ruled. Um, you know, I think you can see why this has been such a difficult text to um, adapt, you know, and, and to get people to buy into there's a lot of like political stuff. There's a lot of like downloading of world and processes and just kind of stuff that's going on. Um, and, and I gotta say, like, it almost feels like in, at times, like you're taking 
um, like the Phantom Menace and the stuff that happens in that, like the political stuff and being like, yes, enjoy Star Wars. If that was the first Star Wars, I feel like a lot of people would have been like, this is some really heady shit. Um, and that's why, like, I think when you look at like the sci-fi things that really work, like, like the original Star Wars uh, trilogy, it really is just like, there's good guys and bad guys and the good guys have to beat the bad guys. It's really simply like a really simple yeah. premise. Dune is pulling in a lot of different aspects um, that make it just a really co- complex story to tell. So it's just not as straightforward. And I can understand that being a barrier to access for some people still, if you just want to like turn your brain off and just be like, wow, this is a really beautiful and overwhelming and uh, simply just like jaw-dropping visual experience you can just go and enjoy it for that it's really that good yeah and i was impressed with how coherent i think the storytelling really is given the reputation that everyone's you know knows um at the end of the day it's this dune part one is not really hard sci-fi all that much right it's a pretty familiar type of narrative and once the uh uh attack happens it is incredibly propulsive thrilling mm-hmm. uh chase movie and i, I feel like yeah. that's really easy to grasp all that stuff you know and i i give the screenwriters and denny a lot of credit because i think the world building is really smart really tactful they do exposition i think in a really nice way you know I, the, the, the 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 parts of dune i have read it was interesting to see what scenes they kept what scenes they changed and then the scenes they change were done to better serve exposition uh, from a filmmaking uh, perspective. I really liked how the, how the movie uh, sets up. Now I, I did have, you know, a bit of a, you know, knowledge going in of the Harkonnens and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, House of Trades and all that. So I kind of had, had a little bit of the, the politics already down, but either way, I, I, I think it's, it's quite coherent. And, you know, for all the talk of how Dune, you know, becomes this really big trip, I think they handle it really well. In terms of how Paul, you know, starts having visions and he's like high off the spice and all that, and I thought it really all, all made sense. And uh, at the end of the day, if you're not super invested in all that, it's still really thrilling and really epic. So mm-hmm. I think there's a, there's so much to like. Yeah, um, I, I agree. I, I I really enjoyed it. Um, I, there were multiple points where I found myself like literally saying out loud like holy shit or like wow just because it's really visually stunning um but i i agree like once the harkin attack invasion whatever you want to call it happens i really feel like the movie just is like running at 100 miles per hour up until the end basically um i I do think some of the stuff before that is a little bit slow at points um a lot of paul just kind of like in his room uh learning about things which i think is like important to kind of like lay that base for why he like knows so much and understands how things work and i think also to kind of like set that like stage of like an isolated you know figure who once he gets this chance to come out into the world has all these things but doesn't really chance competent still yeah um i think that that really still works and i I think you can sit with it and enjoy it um but man uh, that that invasion uh the whole like double cross or crossing yeah. of um right. oscar isaac's uh leto duke leto yeah. was just like really really impressive and ah oh, man there's just so much to like dig into i don't even know exactly where yeah. to start <laughs> so one of the key changes they do is um in the book i like i, I was like chapter four or something mm-hmm. 
you, you know the Harkonnens are playing this cross, but you also know that the doctor is the mole who's gonna do it. You know that as the reader, like right away. So I like that they actually kind of kept that uh, unknown to the viewer until it happens. You're like, oh, who who betrayed Atreides? Who's gonna get uh, Duke Leto killed? Like, oh, it was the doc. It's because he had mm-hmm. they had a that his wife, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I like I like that change. Um, I said you would meet your wife. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Who could have seen this coming? Yeah, that Baron, not a great guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just in general, like speaking to the world building, I really love the world of Dune and how it's like combat. It's a big focus on melee, hand-to-hand combat, all of that. But technologically speaking, even though we have interstellar travel and, and spaceships and all that, there's no computers. You know, it's all, it's much more uh, mechanical and grounded. Like when Paul's learning things at home, it's on like a projector, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, on the other side of things, you have these Mentat characters, Steve McKinley Hen- uh, Henderson for Atreides and uh, David uh, Desmolishin for the Harkonnens. Human computers, right? Like they don't really explain it all that much, but there's like a ton of subtext there uh, for use assumed down the line, but also just kind of like backstory of the Dune world that they don't explain too much because they just have to get a move on with the movie. But I, I think it's all done pretty well. But just like visually, you know, like I think the technology, like the spi- the ships, obviously oh, it's all man. CG, but the ships are so stunning, right? Yeah. All, all those scenes, like, yeah, this, when they travel in space, incredible. Um, and then it's just on location, you know, they shot in a lot of places, but uh, a lot of the Arrakis uh, sets were in Jordan. And I think I think it looks looks incredible. You know the the uh, the costume design of the the suits that uh, recycle your body's uh, moisture and water looks really great on 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 the desert dunes. You know, really really brings me back to uh, Star Wars shooting Tatooine uh, totally. in Tunisia. You know, in North Africa. So uh, I thought that was really cool. And it's also funny to kind of reflect on like similarities you see in Star Wars. I actually heard people mentioning Star Wars when I was leaving the theater. Because if we recall, Frank Herbert's Dune came out before Star Wars, the first mm-hmm. movie came out. And yet the Fremen uh, of Arrakis have a lot in common with say, the Tusken Raiders of Tatooine, yeah. right? In terms of these misunderstood people of the sand that are, you know, in, in commune with nature and all that. Totally, man. Um, yeah, you, you know, you, you mentioned like uh, harkening back to scenes from other things. Um, you know, one of my favorite characters in this whole thing was Josh Brolin. And I don't know why. Yeah. I just really loved his performance uh, as like this like hardened uh, like weapon. I guess he's a weapons master. Yes. Gurney Halleck. And uh, the, the scene where him and T- Timothy Chalamet fight. I mean, that's straight Game of Thrones, Arya and Syria. Like 100%. Sure. Hell yeah. You know? And it's, yeah. it's a really cool introduction, not only to um, Chalamet's fighting ability or Paul's fighting ability and just kind of laying out like the danger there, yeah. but also you you get to learn the the uh, shield that yeah, the, the body shield, shield that they have. Oh yeah, really cool. Um, and then the the next scene I really love with Brolin is when the the Harkin um, Harkin and, um, invasion happens, and you just see him like leading the charge of like everybody from the barracks out as like yeah everybody's like coming down from the ships. It's just such a cool shot, and like you feel like you're like going into battle. Just freaking awesome and. Uh, I mean, I assume Brolin's dead. I don't, I, do, I don't think we see him die on screen, do we? We don't. 
And I have chosen not to look this up because I feel like he I'm might not, not be either. dead. So I'm, I want to find this out it. in the books. So right. yeah, I think he might come back in part two, probably captured, you have to imagine. Yeah, Although maybe I, they I, kill him. I don't know. It, it'll come up. They definitely, for a reason, did not make that show note. you. Yeah. Same, um, same with Stephen McKinley Henderson. But I thought that was awesome. And then I also really loved everything with Oscar Isaac. I thought he was just super, like, you know, we've seen him give some great performances recently. I think this is the best one we've seen. Him Uh, as uh, Duke uh, Duke, uh, Atreides. Yeah, it's just, like, totally convincing. And then all the stuff with him when he gets double-crossed, then he's sitting across from the Baron on that huge table and just kind of like he's in there naked and just like incapacitated, just like, man, he just fucking kills it the whole time. Like Oscar Isaac, good for yeah. you, man. You needed this. I mean, the perfect level of grace and gravitas and presence that you yeah. want from this uh, father of Paul and head of this great house. Like it's everything you want from that role. You know, he's yeah. tremendous. I have to say, though, I was awfully impressed with Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho just right? fucking badass the whole time he is amazing in this dude he he's so convincing and like i, I just really like I, I was expecting him to kind of give the momoa like uh here's my like snarky line and like right. he never really goes there and like every scene with him he just he kills it like that, yeah. that my favorite scene obviously i think is the one where he goes locks the door and is fighting right. off the uh, people coming to get chalamet near the end but like and i think every- dramatically it lands so much because you know he's gonna die because Paul already had the vision of this. Yep. And you're just like, fuck no, I love this dude. Please mm-hmm. don't die. And when he gets back up, when he's like already mortally wounded, he just keeps fucking him up until they really finally get him. You know, mm-hmm. so good. Uh, but you know, it, it, it's a very similar performance to Aquaman, but because the writing is at a higher level, it's great. Like he he basically he, if he had done a my man to Paul when they meet after he lands the the ship when they embrace it would have felt totally in character you know yep um i i literally love the moment when 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 he's like realizing what's happened and and they're fucked then he just like goes to the landing platform and like fucks up five dudes and the other guys like um all right you know what take the ship we'd also don't want to die i love (laughs) that (laughs) yeah amazing and he's just like looking at them like i'm gonna fucking kill you if you come in closer (laughs) amazing um yeah great stuff um you know who else i thought was great in this and like i don't always buy him was dave bautista yeah and, like as uh the right hand man to yeah um, the, the nephew baron of Harkin. the baron mm-hmm. um I, I a lot of times bautista especially when he's you know playing those those alien roles uh can it be hit or miss for me i i, I like him uh in the marvel universe but sometimes i just I'm like okay you're just kind of like a doofus there for you know effect he's great in this i thought Credit to Denny because one of the best Batista roles to this point is his small role in the beginning of Blade Runner 2049, of course, a Denny film. Uh, yeah, I thought he was really, uh, really effective. And I'm, if we get Dune Part Two, you know, watching Paul or whoever, maybe, maybe uh, Gurney's still alive and he does it. Watching someone get the kill, that character was going to be great. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Skarsgård, man how just fucking despicable he can be and gross as the Baron. He still yeah. got it. He still yeah. got it. He's still throwing a hundred. It's great. Yeah. The scene with the poison too. Yeah. Like, like I feel like we all knew it wasn't going to work, but just like, ah, you're like, come on, Oscar Isaac, please. <laughs> Land is well. played. Almost. 
um yeah yeah what other moments or, or things stood out to you i like the fight scene near the end between um chalamet and uh who was it um uh one of the fremen i don't i don't know if we know his yeah. name the one who challenges uh them because uh jessica rebecca ferguson's character like catches javier bardem off guard and like he makes mm-hmm. like a challenge per their culture i don't yeah. know if you know the name I don't, I don't know either, but I, I thought that whole fight scene was great. Um, and it obviously really sets you up with um, Chalamet and Zendaya, but um, just also like it shows his competence as a fighter and as someone that, yeah. you know, could be the leader of whatever the next step is for him. Um, I'm so interested in the story now. And I think, and yeah. like you, I really want to get the book just to kind of read it and, and know everything that's going to happen. Here, but, here's my copy of the book. I have it from a uh, used bookstore nice it's fucking hella old and fucked up but i love having old fucked up books so yeah that's my dune i've read like a bit of it so i got a ways to go um you know speaking speaking of that scene at the fremen though i love when uh chalamet when paul when he, like before they fight he, like holds the knife like over his head mm-hmm. chalamet really i think did a good job with the action chops the fighting chops you know he had not seen yeah. him do this before and I was kind of thinking, you know, obviously he's an actor. We and many others have long since celebrated. He's the new Leonardo DiCaprio. But did Leonardo DiCaprio ever do a movie quite like this in his young young career? I don't think he did. You know, even separate the IP of this, like the 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 action chops and and the genre chops that accompany Dune, I think is something a little unique. Chalamet, I'm so happy he was he was a pick for this. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I loved the line from uh, Jason Momoa being his like best friend and saying, ah, I see that. I see you got some more muscles there. He's like, really? He's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I just that's a really funny line. Seeing them next to each other is just a uh, stark contrast. Yeah. It, uh, you know, wondering about Chalamet, you know, we saw him in a Wes Anderson film and a Denny film. Uh, two very different types of movies. Obviously, if you're listening to the pod all the way through, you're going to know that. Um it, where where does he like rank for you just in terms of like actors who can open a movie at this point like you, is he up there like who's above him? well at you know put at oh, actors who can open leo. a movie in quotes no one really can do that anymore but i think leo can you y- sure yeah and tom cruise but even then it's like is it tom cruise or is it just mission impossible that's to mission that, you know yeah. it's tough <laughs> to really say sometimes um I mean, he's definitely up there in terms of investment from young performers. He has such an impressive CV so far. Like, we, we all like Zendaya a lot. She's very good. Mm-hmm. But apart from Euphoria and I guess Malcolm and Marie, it's a bit of a thin resume thus far. Mm-hmm. She just hasn't done a lot yet. But, like, you look at what, what Timmy's done so far, obviously two big roles in, in Ger- with Gerwig. And, um, you know, he has, the, he has the Willy Wonka thing coming up, though, which is kind of annoying because it's like, that's just a waste of his time. Like, like. <laughs> Aren't you rich enough by now? Can we move on past this? Because I want to see that Bob Dylan movie, man. You're supposed to be Bob, young Bob Dylan. If you can pull that off, that'd be sick. Yeah. I mean, if he, if he can sing like convincingly, I mean, Bob yeah. Dylan is his own his voice. You know, it's very right. weird. But yeah, I mean, that'd be really impressive. I, I'm just thinking, I mean, it's, uh, Leo, I, I, I'm trying to think who else I might put ahead of him. I don't really know. Like, I, I would I would like to say someone like... Um, 
you know, someone like Daniel Kaluuya, but obviously not, you know, like, no. I think, I think Kaluuya is on the same level of like actor chops, but not right. in terms of stardom. It's, I mean, we talked about this in our breakout about the Chris Wars, the Hollywood Chris's and, you know, apart from their franchise work, it's not like Chris Pratt and Chris Hemsworth have exactly opened too many films. Like it, it's truly a difficult thing to do. And I wouldn't even say Timmy's necessarily opening up this movie either. You know, because it's such a stacked cast after all. True. Um, but I, I really did like them in the movie. And, uh, you know, even like before the uh, before the Harkonnens invade, I thought the whole scene with uh, him and actually like a lot of the characters, uh, when they go survey the spice uh, collector, the, the big the big machine. Right. And then you see the uh, uh, the, the, the sandworm attack. I thought yeah. that was really thrilling, too, you know. I think all the sandworm, sandworm stuff is just great. And it just yeah. adds like tension and drama. It's, it's really cool. And, and the CGI of it is unbelievable, dude. Just oh, like, yeah. the whole, all the CGI in this is incredible. And like yep. just the scale of it all is just really unbelievable. Right. Un- really cool. And, and like I said about, um, like, you know, the, the, the mechanical nature of so much technology. I love that the way they divert the worms is with this little probe they stick in the ground that just, makes a pop on itself it's like a little tiny thing you know so smart though you know yeah yeah makes a lot of sense um bardem in a bit of a thankless role but uh really just always like seeing him show up uh hoping we get some more of him in the next one um i don't know what else what else about you what else yeah so i guess um something that i know is slightly different from the beginning of the book is um everything you learn about uh jessica's uh order you know, this uh, female, uh, fuck, I forget what they're called. This, the female do, order. Do you mean the Bene Gesserit yes. or whatever? Yes, is? yes. I and, said and that wrong you, for sure. Gesserit, however you say yeah. it. This is this female order. And like, that's a huge thing with like the mythological thematic stuff that's to come in terms of Paul's like status. He's obviously very much a messianic character Um as a trope but also like literally in in the story he's already being treated as that by so many of the fremen right and mm-hmm. you know the, the scene you have with charlotte rampling's reverend mother where like he puts his hand in the box that's a really great um chapter in the book obviously because we're in paul's head as he's experiencing all this pain i guess it's tough to really do it any better than they did in the film but they do kind of take it a little further quickly because we see the reverend mother meet with the harkonnens before the invasion and you kind of like we're, we're kind of learning the politics very quickly so mm-hmm. you know where uh where lady jessica fits in with that um to come uh obviously i'm intrigued about that i wonder how effective that side of things is to you know everybody who's seen this movie but i also love rebecca ferguson she has action yeah. chops as we've seen from mission impossible five so uh yeah i, I thought it was still really great I think one thing we just have to like reiterate um, Hans Zimmer absolutely snapped in this movie. Just like his score is so overwhelming and uh, I think fits the movie so perfectly. I was trying to think when's, when's the last time he did a score that I really was like blown away by. Cause he does a lot of them. Um, right. But hmm. you know, he, I guess probably Blade Runner 2049 or Dunkirk stand out as like, yeah, that's good. a couple of years back. Yeah, um, he did a lot of the DC scores of late. I don't know if any yeah. of them like were amazing. The Wonder Woman one is memorable because it's so different. True. No, 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 You know, yeah, some of the stuff with uh, Nolan obviously yeah. always stands. That's out. what I was gonna say. Yeah. 
Interstellar um, had a really good one. In- Inceptions is unbelievable. So, yeah, he's just he's great. Um, he's probably one of three that are just like unbelievable uh, score talents. At this yeah, point, so. you know, Warner Brothers feels like they have him on retainer at this point. <laughs> it's yeah. like, hey, we got a big movie coming out, Hans. You want to do this one? And he's like, okay. Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> uh, we're we're gonna hear him in uh, Top Gun Maverick. Um, then uh, oh, he's in did the Survivor, Barry Levinson movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Dune. Uh, go see it in theaters if you can. If not, just buy a really big TV and a really good sound system and uh, watch it at home. But Dave, please watch it in some manner, one or the other. We'll do just. Yeah. just wb needs the data and wb and legendary who co-financed it they need the data that people want to see these movies yeah absolutely um dave as we wrap up what do we got to watch or listen to for next week yeah we'll talk about the end of what we do in the shadow season three edgar wright's long-awaited last night in soho another film delayed many times due to covid finally here uh new album from ed sheeran we'll see about that (laughs) Yeah, I'm from the War on Drugs. Yeah. Uh, and also Zack Snyder, Double Dose 2021, his prequel to Army of the Dead, Army of Thieves, is coming out on Netflix. Hey, I don't know. Could be cool. We'll be talking about it all and more. Uh, SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod, YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod, and Nostalgia Best of 2021 on Spotify. We'll catch you next week. Yeah.